Bibles this morning to the 10th chapter of Hebrews. If you have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. The Christian life is the result, it is the effect of the fact that the sacrifice of Jesus forgives us of all of our sin and makes us so perfect that we are now not only able but commanded in Hebrews to approach the very throne of God with boldness. The throne of God is a throne of grace for God's people. This is the glory and the beauty of what the scripture calls the new covenant. The old covenant, the terms of which were obey the law and you will live, disobey it and you will die, has been done away with. It has been made obsolete by this new covenant. All the rites and sacrifices performed under it every year by its priests were never sufficient to forgive sins, which meant the consciences of the people under that old system were never clean. The way to God was cut off. All that old covenant ever did, all those sacrifices, those rites, was testify to their need for something permanent, something that would be effective, something better. And yet, these believers the letter has been written to, were being tempted to go back under that old system. They wanted their obedience to the law to be the basis of their salvation and their assurance. This letter was written to call them back, to stop them from drifting away by neglecting this message of great salvation. The message of the new covenant in which Jesus Christ, God's son, is the high priest. He offered up himself as a sacrifice for sins once and for all. He makes the people who believe in him absolutely perfect to stand before God forever because he will be alive forever. God raised him from the dead. All he accomplished was eternal, it was effective, and it was better. That's what the author has been laboring to prove since chapter 2. And the big crescendo of all that theology came in verse 18 of this chapter. Where there is forgiveness of these, our sins, our lawless deeds, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what we find now in this great letter is that God has shaped our entire lives as Christians to continue hearing and believing this message, the assurance that Jesus Christ provides through his fully sufficient sacrifice for us is the basis for our eternal lives, of course. But it is also the basis of the lives we live as his people on the earth. So we cling to the sufficiency of Jesus alone for our salvation because Jesus Christ is holding fast to us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy, for your grace. And Lord, I pray that you would enable me to speak clearly this morning, Lord, with conviction to speak the truth. Please be with me, overshadow my will, my desires, Lord, and make me your own for these next moments. And Lord, please help everyone be able to listen and to understand and to get the weight of this text for us as we listen to you, our Father, about our older brother, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen. Let me read 19 through 25 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Therefore, Right. So what follows that word is the effect of verse 18 for us. Right, Christian, all your sins are forgiven. We need to add nothing to the sacrifice of Jesus for us in order to be saved forever. Therefore, so what are the implications of that for me in real time? That's the question the following verses answer for these 
drifting believers. What does verse 18 mean for me? Since by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter the holy places. So his sacrifice has opened up a new and living way to enter into God's presence. And since we have Jesus as a great high priest, faithful over this house of believers, he is building. Remember 3.6, Hebrews is one line of argumentation for our faith. Since all that is true, in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All these details about the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest are bookended by the exact same exhortation. Remember 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That was 4, 14 through 16. It sounds almost exactly like what we read here in 10, 22, and 23. This is the message the author wants us to get. So what is the basis then of all Christian hope and endurance? In verse 23, it is the faithfulness of Jesus for us. Our faithfulness as Christians hinges on and results from his faithfulness as a high priest. That's verse 23. We must endure to the end. That's what we're reading here. That's the reason for this letter. The reason you can't just say that. In other words, why did you need 13 chapters to say that? Why not just write them and say, listen, you all need to endure to the end. Make sure that you do that. Why, why 13 chapters? to exhort them to one thing. There's nothing hard to understand about a command to endure to the end. But you can't just say that. You can't just tell us that. Why not? Because we will take it as a challenge that it's up to us to complete by our devotion and our willpower. And no one will endure to the end by devotion and willpower. No one. It's precisely because these believers thought that they could that they are now drifting away from the gospel, the message of great salvation. The the commands of the Bible are not challenges to our wills. They are given so that we will realize what God is worthy of, what God requires, and our inability, therefore, to please him and then throw ourselves completely onto the sacrifice and the faithfulness of Jesus, our eternally sufficient high priest. We must be continually drawing near to God. The author wanted us to know that the sacrifice of Jesus for us means we can do that in the full assurance that comes from having faith in him. He is enough. He's all we need to draw near. We've been washed completely clean. There's nothing to be ashamed of in his presence. Nothing for our perfection and righteousness that is still lacking. We should cling to who Jesus is and what he has done for us for, in verse 23, because, so look at the rationale, cling to him because Our assurance does not come from our faithfulness to Christ, but from his faithfulness to us. It's a massive difference. Our assurance is not found inside of us. It's not found in our level of faithfulness. It's found in his faithfulness to us. Because of that, because of his faithfulness to us, do two things in the text. First, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Right? That's a, that's a command. We should have total confidence in what we hope in. The sacrifice of Jesus. And in verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I would love 
to be able to use this verse to tell you that you need to be here every time the doors are open. But that's not what this text means. Okay? Meet together here certainly includes, would include the corporate gatherings we have as the church like this, like Sunday night, Wednesday night, but mainly what the text is arguing for is a habit, a lifestyle of Christ-centered community, a lifestyle that we won't neglect. We need to be together is the point of this text. Again, the author is arguing for the same few things throughout the letter. He has one line of argumentation to make, and then there are these side things that he, he just keeps arguing for. Remember chapter 3, verse 13, right? He's, he's repeating himself in, in, in a way. 3.13 said, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's, he's talking about more than just coming to church. We learn two distinct times in Hebrews that one of the things God has given to us to make sure we are always reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus for us is each other. We cannot overstate the importance of this. We can't. My best words would not do the importance of this command any justice this morning. Christian community, the communion of the saints, whether it's over a dinner or a football game, whether it's in Bible studies or for coffee in these corporate gatherings or when we gather around the Lord's table, it's for the purpose of reminding one another how sufficient Jesus is for our forgiveness, for our righteousness, and for our endurance. That's why it's not to be neglected. right? You, you may come to church like this sometimes and think, I, what was the purpose of me being here today? Right? It's, it's only when everything centers around this that it's worth our time. Beloved, the necessity of community for each and every one of us, the necessity of being reminded of the sufficiency of Jesus for us, increases every second that we get closer to the return of our Lord. It, it has, this command, in other words, is more urgent today than it was then. All the more, don't neglect this all the more as you see the day drawing near. For all our love of prophecy in the future, you would think that that would encourage us to be more diligent about be reminding each other of the sufficiency of Jesus for us. It doesn't. It doesn't. That's not where end times obsession goes. We need to be meeting together and encouraging one another about the sufficiency of Jesus for us. That's not where it goes. You know where it goes? More hunger to learn more stuff. I know life moves fast. I, I, I do. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I know we're all so busy. There's so much going on. And the younger you are, the more children we have, the more activities we're involved in, the harder that gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ becomes. I'm not patronizing you. I fully understand that. And, and by the way, I'm not arguing here for... Um, I think we've done a disservice to one another by, by making the gathering the event of the Christian life. I don't want to quarantine all the Christians in the building where the church gathers. Christianity is viral. It was made to spread by contact. If all the Christians are quarantined all the time in the church, doing activities and having services all the time, we aren't going to be around people enough to spread the Jesus virus. You see that? They're not here. They're out there. So yes, I'd love to see your faces every time we gather. But that's not the reality. Now, quickly, if the corporate gatherings of the church are the only place in your life that you're likely to hear of the sufficiency of Jesus, then yes, by all means, make it a priority. But when this was written, they weren't meeting twice on Sundays and once on Wednesdays. right? We're not free to just lay that down on top of this verse and say, since that's how often we meet, you have to meet that often to be faithful to this text. We can't create services and then tell you you're only faithful if you attend these things. But at the same time, okay, at the same time, it's, it's, it's funny. Somebody said to me a couple weeks ago, I'm just waiting for you to preach a sermon where you'll step on people's toes. 
Well, <laughs> no, this is, this is no big deal. I just was thinking about it. Some of us hold the value and importance of gathering together very cheaply. Very cheaply. Even some of us put in positions of leadership don't put a premium on gathering together with the saints. So no wonder the rest of the people don't, right? I know times have changed. I understand that. But here is what has not changed. And in our hearts, beloved, cannot and must not change. We all need to find ways to put ourselves around brothers and sisters in Christ who will proclaim his sufficiency to us. And that is not exclusive to new believers. It is not reserved only for those who are more prone to study. This isn't about study. This isn't about the constant amassing of information in our heads. This is about the need each and every single one of us has to be reminded every moment that Jesus Christ as our forgiveness and our righteousness is enough for us to make it home. We don't have time for Christian community that isn't doing that, nor do we have the need. We need to be intentional about structuring the times we do gather. However... So that we are doing what the Bible calls us to do. We don't gather because it's tradition. We don't plan things for tradition. We don't plan things for nostalgia or anything like that. That's not what matters. That's not what we have to preserve. That's not what we have to proclaim. Those things have zero ability to help us endure. They're nice. They're good to experience. They are not how we endure according to the word of God. And Christian gatherings should work towards this goal, which is why Christ and his blood are central to the gathering of the church. And if anything is allowed to take the focus away from them, it is an enemy of our faith. And as a shepherd, I must protect us from that, which I will do. There are things about our church and when we gather that probably could change I've been observing now I've been here almost a year and a half the problem is that I absolutely despise conflict I hate it like into my very soul I hate it but when I stand to give an account for how I have shepherded this church, it won't be to any of you. It will be to Christ. It's in the context of how sufficient Jesus is for us that we're called to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't tell us how to do it or what to do. He tells us to figure out ways to do it. Right? There are ways to stir each other up to love and to do good works in the body of Christ. There are good ways and there are bad ways. There are ways that help and there are ways that don't. Now, the normal approach is to make you feel guilty enough that you start doing things. Question your commitment. Question your level of love for the Lord. Well, guilt is very powerful. It's one of the most powerful motivators in the world. The problem is motivating by guilt only goes as long as or until your desire for something overrides the sense of guilt you feel. So it's it's not permanent. As soon as I want what I felt guilty about more than I care about doing the right thing, I'm going to go back to doing what I did before, which is why every couple years you got to rouse everybody with some kind of meetings about how you need to be more committed, right? That's, that's, that's what you do. That's, that's what we've always done. I think we could imply here, I think we need to imply here that stirring one another up to love and good works works successfully or fruitfully if it has something to do with assurance, not the opposite. Right? Look look at the context here. He didn't make this command until he gave every, he gave Christians every reason to not fear for their salvation. Isn't that amazing? That's when the command comes. You don't have to be afraid of losing your salvation. 
Jesus Christ has done it all. Since that's the case, you see, that's the basis of the command now. Not if you don't do this, you die. It's you are so safe, you're free to live, you're free to succeed, you're free to fail. Just figure out how to stir each other up to love and to do good works. Why? To get assurance? No, because you have it. I think that's the command. Use the message of the sufficiency of Jesus to stir one another up to love and to do good works. The assurance that comes from Jesus is the basis of all of that. It's the basis of love. It's the basis of good works. We tried everything else to get people to love each other and do good works. We've written a million books. We had as many simulcasts and conferences and revivals. What if we just preach the gospel to one another? What if you didn't need a professional to do this? What if every member of the body of Christ was 100% capable of obeying these verses? You are. You are. Right? You are. What if we just preach that to one another? You know Jesus is for you, right? You know that Jesus will never fail you, right? Your sins are forgiven, so let's love one another. Let's serve one another. We're free. We have hope. Christ is for us. God's word would have us be face to face for that. Don't neglect that. It's not a part of our lives we can put off or put in the rearview mirror as was the habit of some in verse 25. We like to think that our day and age of busyness and cell phones and ball games is when people got too busy to prioritize Christian community. It was a habit around 70 AD also, right? Human nature hasn't changed. Beloved, I need your encouragement as much as you need mine. We need each other all of the time. We've made church into such a business that we dread gathering together. It becomes such a slog that we dread it. We have to make ourselves go, make ourselves be a part of it. It's so easy for other things to command our attention because gathering with believers has either proven unfruitful, not worth my time, or it just gets old. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. And we know where things are going to go. And we know who's going to fight. We know who's going to cause division. And we know where we're going to end back up. No wonder we're so impotent as a church by and large in our country. We think it's the culture. It's not the culture. Right? The culture's going to be evil. Stop being shocked when sinners love sin. Stop it. We are called to something else. We, we, we make church into a business at the peril of our own souls. Right? We, 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 I'll die on that hill. Two times in Hebrews, we're told not to neglect something. Two times. Don't neglect such a great salvation in 2.3. And don't neglect to meet together in 10.25. Now that puts the importance of not neglecting to meet together in perspective, doesn't it? No one is sufficient to endure to the end by keeping to themselves, privatizing their faith, staying separate from the body of Christ, individualizing their experiences. Everyone knows as, as time goes on, we talk more and more about what does that verse mean to you? What does that verse mean to me? No. What does that verse mean? Question mark. Right? It's, it's, we divide everything up. This is for women. This is for men. This is for old. This is for young. We're never together. And, and, and until we do this, but guess what? None of us are doing anything right now, but listening. Do we need this? Absolutely. It's in the Bible. But if this is all there is mainly, beloved, that's not the recipe to endure. It's not the recipe to endure. Why are we, why do we need this so badly? Why can't we neglect this? Well, what has been the danger in Hebrews? Because it it hasn't changed. What have the warnings here been teaching us to avoid? What have they been telling us not to do? Neglect the gospel, the message of great salvation, which centers on the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest. Since we are not only saints who are perfect, 
10.14, we are also human beings who continue to struggle with sin, with doubt, with unbelief, 4.15 and 16. We are simultaneously saints and sinners. And again, according to Hebrews in particular, what is, when he talks about sin, what is the specific sin we are in the most danger of committing here, doubting the sufficiency of Jesus, not believing in it. It's so dangerous and it's so potent and immediate of a threat that we read in verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Hold on a minute. Now, so the rest of the letter is not true. Right? I mean, think it through. This, this verse is a case study in why context is everything in understanding and interpreting the Bible correctly. If we don't hear these verses in the context of Hebrews, if we don't read them with an understanding of the sin that's being addressed in Hebrews, this verse will scare you to death in a letter about assurance. Let me read it again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Okay, so just quick check by raise of hands. Who in here no longer sins ever? Well, what are we going to do? Right? Who in here, since having heard the gospel, received the knowledge of the truth, has never sinned again? So if we read this out of context, we have two options. Quit, because clearly it's talking about us, or lie. Right? Those are the options. Listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But I'm not as bad as I used to be. You're out. You're out. If you go on sinning deliberately, well, see, that's the catch, Tony. I, I don't sin deliberately anymore. I only sin by accident. Or maybe I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I, I try really hard not to sin. This, this verse makes no covering for that. Right? It, there's, there's no, Whatever sinning this verse is talking about eventually has no sacrifice available to cover it. There's no need, though, to play games with this text. But we need to make sure we're clear before we continue. If sinning here means anything and everything, then all that the author has said up to this point is a lie, and he's completely contradicting himself. Just think it through. What has been the point of this letter since at least chapter 7? The once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, made once for all, forgives all of our sin. What's this? Right? That sacrifice obtains eternal redemption. 9.12 Jesus offered up his sacrifice once for all. Look back at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, our sins and lawless deeds, from verse 17, there is no longer any offering for sin. Would it make any sense whatsoever? Would it even be textually consistent to now turn around and say, that sacrifice that was once for all, it stops being sufficient if you keep sinning. Well, then it isn't eternal, and it wasn't once for all. It was once for some or most. The whole argument for the supremacy of the new covenant in Hebrews is 8.12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We have to read chapter 10 in light of that. right? God isn't saying two contradictory things. Two chapters apart. He's not saying, in the new covenant, I will be merciful towards you when you sin and not keep a record of your sins anymore in 8.12. And then in 10.26 say, I will hold your sins against you until there no longer remains a sacrifice for your sins. Right? 10.26 is 
talking about something very specific if we read it in the context of the letter. Notice, first of all, with the word for in verse 26, he's talking about something that can be avoided by not neglecting to meet together to constantly be reminded of how sufficient Jesus is for our assurance. This is the exact same argument he was making back in chapter 6. He's addressing their specific sin in Hebrews as he has been all along. If we go on doubting the sufficiency of Jesus to save us, we have rejected the only sacrifice for sins that there is. There's not another way. The only thing one, the only thing one that denies the sufficiency of Jesus has to look forward to from God is judgment. Notice how he grounds this. Notice he, he grounds it in what they are considering returning to. And he does that for a reason. Look at 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What's his argument here based on? The fact that if you set aside the law of Moses, the old covenant, what has become obsolete and was vanishing away. If you set even that aside, even though it's, it's now gone, you died without mercy if evidence was presented that you had broken the law, that you had disregarded it. That's the point of verse 29, right? So imagine the judgment that will consume you if you set aside the sufficiency of Jesus as the sacrifice for your sins. That's the terms of the new covenant. It's one thing to trample on tablets of stone. God considers it another thing entirely to trample on his son's blood. That is what refusing to rest and believe in its sufficiency is to God. It's trampling it under your feet as though it has no worth. Look at 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. Without Jesus Christ, there's nothing more terrifying in this universe than to fall into the hands of the living God. God will punish consciously for all eternity those who refuse to believe and trust in the sufficiency of his son to forgive their sins and to be their only righteousness. It would be terrifying to fall into God's hands without Jesus. But the book of Hebrews means that with Jesus, we would be safe and free and loved in those very same hands forever and ever and ever. Do not reject him. Do not refuse to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus for you. His sacrifice forgives all our sin for all who believe on him. His righteousness stands in place of all our imperfection and disobedience and unrighteousness for those who believe in him. Fall believing into his hands because Christ holds fast. When we refuse to believe that the blood of Jesus covers all our sin, we trample him under our feet. When we refuse to believe that the blood of Jesus has made us perfect already and sanctifies us, we trample him under our feet. And a steady diet of rejecting the sufficiency of Jesus leads to the rejection of Jesus, period. That's the point of Hebrews. Don't drift away. If we're standing on our own righteousness as the basis of our acceptance from God, we think he's for us, he is against us. And the hands of God in that case should only ever be feared. And if you're trusting in your works to save you, that's how it feels. But to rest, to believe that Jesus is as good and sufficient and supreme as this book claims he is to forgive me and to make me righteous, to do what? To just take God at his living and active word is to be saved. I'm not reliable to keep my promises. God 
is forever faithful. So we should go with him. This is the word we constantly and desperately need to hear. That's why we have one another. That's the purpose of us being a church. Right? It, it, beloved, the Great Commission is not just a task that we're called to perform and obey. And it absolutely is that. But it comes from a place of peace and unity and joy and freedom and hope and love and life. The Great Commission cannot be carried out biblically by people that are scared to death they're not saved. What are we inviting people into? Try really hard or you might not make it. Well, no thanks. Right? Do your best. You might make heaven. I'm good. I'm good. I'll take my chances. What's the difference between my system and your system? Right? You can't export what you don't have. Right? So, so God has designed the church so that it's this constant place of, of proclaiming to one another the assurance that we have through Jesus Christ, using that as the means by which we encourage one another to love each other, to do good works. When it's not coming from that, it's, it's a, it's a, a factory where you're trying to crank out a product at a certain speed. And, and nobody can survive. Who likes that? Nobody. Well, the church is an embassy of heaven on the earth. It's different here. What we have, Jesus said, that you'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. We don't believe that. If we did, we'd try to love each other. We don't. We all want our own way. Why won't the church grow? Maybe because it stinks to people that are trying to smell it from the outside. Right, beloved? We are supposed to enjoy this because of what Christ has done. It's the basis of everything. It's the basis of everything. This is the word we constantly, desperately need to hear. That's why we have each other. Let, let us never neglect our need for this message that Christ holds fast. Right? My hope is in the fact that the one who promised that he would save me is faithful to keep his promises. That's my only hope. The solid rock that is Jesus Christ is our only hope. We need to be reminded of that again and again and again and again so that we don't drift away, so that we do love one another, so that we do good works. We need to be reminded of this again and again and again. We cling to the sufficiency of Jesus alone for our salvation because Jesus is clinging to us. We're going to close in prayer before we take the Lord's Supper. I'll be down front if anyone needs to come and pray. If you believe in your heart, you want to follow Jesus, you want to be saved, come forward. We'll talk it through. God will not turn you away. doesn't matter what you bring with you. He'll take it. You'll leave without it. And for Christians who are struggling... Your assurance is not based in the faith and devotion you are able to conjure up by your own will. Your assurance is based in the trustworthiness of the promise of God for you. Or there is no salvation. So rest in him. Let's pray. The front will be open. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your peace and your love and your joy. And your hope that you give to us all in Jesus Christ. Blessing us all who believe in you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Father. You withhold nothing from us that we need. You will make us happy forever. Everything sad in our lives will become untrue in the forever glory of your face. And so, Father, we praise you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would stir in hearts to look to you for all things. And this we ask and pray in his name. Amen.
prepare to take the Lord's Supper together. We gather once again this morning to take the Lord's Supper together in this bread, in this cup that signify the broken body and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim his death once more by remembering what he's accomplished for us. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 23 and 24, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Corey, would you pray for the bread, please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come to this table. Lord, a table that signifies Christ. Lord, I pray that at this time we would examine ourselves, not in the context of comparing ourselves to Christ, but in the context of seeing Christ's sufficiency in us. Pray that you would bless this bread as a symbol of this body. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the broken body of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, for the redemption that is offered through him by his sacrifice. We praise you and thank you as one family, your people, in his name. Amen. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Dave, would you pray for the cup, please? Father God, as we come once again, we come with thankful hearts for your love, mercy, and grace. So we come now to remember this cup, symbolizing your blood, the pure, righteous, holy, sacrificial blood that you gave for the remission of our sins. We come just to remember that and to declare that you died for us and that our only hope is through you. We pray, Father, as we leave here, that others may see you and us and desire it for themselves. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Father, we praise you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to offer up his blood as remission for our sins, to bring near to you those who were far off. We praise you for your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen.
All right. Thank you for being here this morning, everybody. Just a quick reminder that the deacons will be at the exits to collect our benevolence offering. So God bless you as we sing our song, and after that you'll be dismissed.